one, two, three. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? God is good, is he not? So what's today? Who knows what today is? Yeah, it's Sunday. But today is August 28th, which is 828. And around the world, there's about a thousand pastors brought together by a gentleman by the name of Elder Aaron Macklin, who are preaching on Romans 828 on 828. So uh, he called me and said, will you join us? I said, I'll absolutely join you. So shout out to Elder Macklin and all the pastors around the world preaching on Romans 828 on 828. Now, how many know Romans 828 by heart? Raise your hand. Okay, there's one or two of you. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. That's okay. That's okay. You're going to learn it today. You're going to learn today. You, ain't, you don't know nothing about no Romans 8.28 before you. You're going to learn today. All right, Romans 8.28, you're going to recognize it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So I'm going to say it again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Say it again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Amen. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit, that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to receive from you today. And may the things that we receive from you today stick in our souls. May we grow from them, become complete in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. First word of this verse is and. And we know. It's a little two-letter word in the Greek, de. It's a conjunction. Sometimes it's translated and. Sometimes it's translated but. Sometimes it's translated also. Or moreover. Or yet. Or even. Or yea. There's, it's translated in a multitude of ways. It's a basic conjunction that simply connects the thought that follows with the thought that came before. Now, how you translate it depends upon the context. The context tells you if it's an and, or if it's a but, or if it's a yet, or if it's a moreover, or if it's an even. The context tells you how to translate that word. It's translated and here, but I think it could just as easily be translated but. Two verses earlier, in Romans 8, 26, the Apostle Paul says, the Spirit, likewise the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Paul says, first thing he says is, we do not know. We know not what to pray for as we ought. And the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses because we don't know what to pray for. You ever had that experience? You get on your knees to pray and you don't know what to pray for. And you don't know if you're praying right or wrong. You don't know if you're praying enough or not enough. Is it, am I in the right position? Am I loud enough? I don't know how to pray, and God is looking at my heart. Is my heart right? Am I praying in the right condition before God? Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession through us with groans that words cannot express. What Paul is literally saying is when you get on your knees to pray or when you stand to pray or when you close your eyes to pray, or when you keep your eyes open to pray. By the way, none of that means anything, whether you're standing or kneeling or lifting your hands or not lifting your hands or closing your eyes or keeping your eyes open. 
<laughs> you know, my daughter, the little kids like to always say, your eyes were open when we prayed. It's like, well, how do you know? And the Bible doesn't say close your eyes when you pray. That's, that's a cultural thing. Paul says, don't worry about it if you don't know. Just trust that the Holy Spirit is able to guide you in prayer. The Holy Spirit is praying through you at a level that transpires deeper than your words can express. So first he says in verse 26, we don't know. We don't know how to pray. But then in verse 28, he goes, but we know that all things work together for good. You see the context? We don't know how to pray, but we know that all things are working for the good. We don't know what we're doing when we pray, but we do know what God is doing, regardless of whether we pray or not. We stumble. We're, we're all the inspector gadgets of prayer. We stumble into good things. We stumble into answers to prayer sometimes. But it doesn't matter because we know that God works for the good or all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the cor uh, called according to his purpose. So he says, and or but, we know. Odekin in the Greek, it comes from Edo, the Greek word, Edo. It means to know, to see, or to give attention to. It means all those things. We see it, we know it, and we give our attention to it. Paul says, and we see that all things work together for good, which means that if you look back over your life, you could see different, different constellations of situations that work together for good. Every single one of us in here, that's called a testimony. A testimony is when you look back and you grab that situation and that one and this one and you say, oh, if this didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened. If that didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened. And you put those, you, when you bring those situations into fellowship with one another, it becomes apparent that they were working together for good. So Paul says, we see, we can see it. It's happening right now. Right now, you're in the midst of situations that are working with previous situations to bring about good in your life. You ever watch somebody cook and you don't know what the heck they're doing? It's like, how are they going to get to there from there? It's like, put some water in a bowl. Whenever I hear that, it's like, water? What you need water for? We're making pizza. You know what I mean? Or whenever you see the, the scenes in the movies where somebody's about to get, give birth, and they say, go get me a, go get me a pail of hot water. They say, what you going to do with the hot water? I never understood that. I still don't know, because they didn't have no hot water when my wife gave birth to our child. But anyway, situations in our life are often like that pail of hot water. We're like, what is God going to do with this? How does this relate to anything? And all of a sudden, you watch God bring it all together and put it together, and it works for good in a way that was not expected by you. You didn't expect it to work for good, but it worked for good. You didn't think any good could come out of it, but good came out of it. And sometimes you're not able to see that until hindsight. You're not able to see that for years. Sometimes you're not even able to see it until the end of your life. And we see. But then he says, and we know. To know means to be confident despite what I see. Meaning sometimes I don't see it working for good, but I still know it's working for good. I know. I see. I know. And then he says to give attention to. That's what it also means. Edo. It means to see, to know, and to give attention to. And this is a perfect tense verb in the Greek. Remember what the perfect tense means? Remember when we did our Kingdom First series? And Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we said that the word at hand was a perfect tense verb. It is a present continuous state 
that is based upon a past completed action. It means something happened in the past that is complete, that has created a state that is ongoing. And we know, when Paul says, and we know, it means we continue to know. We go on knowing. We continue to see. We go on seeing. It's a present continuing state based upon a past completed action. We will continue to see. We will continue to know. We will continue to be aware of this truth for the rest of our lives. Why? Because the past action is complete. And what's the past completed action? The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lives, I know that everything's going to work together for good in my life. Come on, somebody. And we know, and we see, and we give our attention to. But sometimes we stop knowing, and we stop seeing, and we stop giving our attention to. And so Paul is writing this verse to invite the Roman believers back into this continuous state of knowing, of seeing, and giving our attention to the truth that in all things God is working for our good. It's true. It's the truth. And we know, Paul says, that all things, all things, and that phrase there for all things, pantapas, it means everything both individually and collectively. It is a combination of individual situations. It means that in every individual situation, God is working good for you, even if it's not a good situation. And not all situations are good. Matter of fact, there's many situations that are not good at all. If you're battling sickness, that sickness is not good, but God can work good for you in that sickness. If you've lost a loved one, that loss is not good, but God can work good for you in the loss of that loved one. If you're experiencing a divorce, that divorce is not good, but God can work good for you in that divorce, right? So no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you're going through, no matter what is transpiring in your life, God is able to work good through Every individual situation, even the stuff that you mess up, even the failures of your life, God works good through them. Now, what that should not do for us is give us a sense of, oh, well, then it's okay. I might as well just go ahead and fail, you know, because, you know, God's going to work some good through it. Now, you'll look back and say There's a, there was a greater good that I wish I would have attended to by obeying God's voice. All things, in all things, God works for the good. All things, soon ergeo, work together. Soon ergeo. Soon means together or with. Ergeo is where we get our word energy from. There's a power and an energy in the togetherness of all things. One situation, working with another situation, working with another situation, working with another situation, and the accumulation of those situations coming together, God works good. All things work together. They're coming together. They're working together. And we have to learn how to have the, pat- have the, have the patience to allow the situations of our lives to begin to work together to bring about God's intended good. All things work together for good. Now that word good in the Greek is a superlative. In our culture and in our language, when you say something's good, it means it's all right. You know what I mean? 
Your wife cooks. She's like, how is it? She's like, it's all, it's good. It's good. It's good. And the higher pitch that it's good is, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, no, it's good. It's good. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, it's good. It's good. That's better. But it's still just, I. Right. But if you go, it's great. That's different. Great is a superlative in our culture. It's the highest level of something. Or you say, it's the best. But yet, God creates the heavens and the earth. And what does he say? It is good. Right? He creates the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. And he sees it and says, it's good. It's good. Tov, the Hebrew word tov. It's a superlative. If God says something is good, that's the best thing God could possibly say. It means it's the best, the greatest, the highest When Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good, he means all things work together for the best. It means that God is collecting the situations of your life to bring about the best for you. It means that what God is working for you is not just aight. That God's intention for your life is not just an aight life. Not just a mediocre life, but God's intention for you is the best. God is working to bring about the best for you. The same way you're working to bring about the best for your own children. You don't want your kids to just have an I life, but you think God just wants you to have an I life. You think you're a better father than God. You think you're a better mother than God. You think you love your children more than God loves his children. Let me tell you something. Jesus said that if if your child asks you for a a fish, you don't give him a scorpion. And if he asks you for bread, you don't give him a stone. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to, to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Whatever desire for good that you have for your children pales in comparison to the desire for good that God has for you. Are y'all cold? I see people throwing sweaters on and putting jackets on Can we just turn that up one degree, please, Pastor Chimway? Just one degree. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that one degree, because that's all you're getting. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm going to be up here sweating like a Hebrew slave. All things work together into the good. That's what it says, ace. Into the good. Meaning, God sees every situation of your life as an ingredient, and when he pours them together into the bowl and mixes them together, what comes out is good. It's good. I, now, I don't, know, I don't know if y'all been watching my Instagram or my Facebook stories, but I, I've been cooking. I've been cooking. I've been cooking. And I've been cooking some good stuff. My daughter, her favorite is pulled pork. But I hadn't made her a pulled pork in a few years. And... Uh, Sonny left for Indonesia, and the day before she left, I said to my daughter, what do you want to eat? She said, Daddy, make me a pulled pork. So I went down to Safeway, and I got a big pork shoulder, and I took it home, it was about 10 pounds. And I made my rub, and I rubbed that thing down, and then I seared it on all sides in oil, and then took it out, and then in that oil, I threw in my onions, and my garlic, and my fresh ginger, you know, and my green onions, and, you know, I threw in all my vegetables and sauteed them in there, 
And then I took that, that uh, pork, that uh, pork shoulder, and I laid it on top of all those vegetables, covered it in my Dutch oven, and then put it in the oven and roasted it for eight hours at 225 degrees. I pulled that thing out of the oven and it just pulled apart like, whew, just strings. Just, it was just beautiful. And it was sitting in all that juice. And uh, I, my, my daughter comes in and she smells it. She sees it. And her face lights up. And I take her to school Monday and I bring her home from school. I, after school, I was like, baby girl, you want to stop by McDonald's? No. What you want? Take me home. Make me a pulled pork sandwich. So I make her these pulled pork sandwiches where, you know, I toast the sourdough bread lightly and some butter. And then I put a layer of cheese on each side and melt it. And then I put the pulled pork with barbecue sauce on top of that. The other side, I put the onions and the avocado. And then I do an egg over medium and put it on top of the pulled pork. And I put the whole thing together. <laughs> Y'all know I got an anointment for this. This is this, this, this. And, and I made a big old sandwich for her, and I, I, it, like, I turned my head for a second, looked back, and she was eating the crumbs on the plate. Like, it was gone. She, and she snorted that sandwich. I don't, know how, I don't know how she ate it that quick, but she destroyed that thing. Now, let me tell you something about my daughter. No matter how, how good the food is, she does not eat leftovers. She's bougie like that. Just too bougie for leftovers. So I take her to school. After school, I was like, hey, baby girl, uh, you want to go get some McDonald's? No, Daddy. What, what do you want? I want to go home and eat pulled pork. So I take her home and make her the same sandwich. She eats that sandwich. She ate that. She wanted that every single day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And on Saturday, we ate the last of that big old pulled, that big old pork shoulder, that 10-pound pork shoulder. We ate the last of it on Saturday, and she was inconsolable. <laughs> she was like Rachel weeping for her children and not being comforted. And I said, baby, what do you want to eat next week? She goes, dad, go buy another pork shoulder and make me another pulled pork. So Saturday, I went and got another one and made that thing for her. And, she, and this last week, she ate it every single day again till it was gone. And uh, you know what she told me yesterday? Go get another one. <laughs> See, when something is good, when something is good, good, when something is good, 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 good. And I didn't even tell you what I put in the rub. Mm. Y'all will run out the door right now. Y'all will be lined up at my house. <laughs> I don't have enough ovens. When something is good, 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 good. You just can't get enough of it. God says what I'm making for you through your life, through your situations, through what's going on, through the stuff that you've got to walk through, through the mountains that you've had to climb, through the valleys that you've had to trudge through, what I'm making through that is so good that you're not going to be able to get enough of it. When it's over, you're going to say, God, do it again. Take me through more mountains and more valleys, whatever you got to take me through to make me some more of that pulled pork life. Mm. I'm so glad I'm not a Muslim or a Jew. <laughs> pull swine all day every day I've been making pizzas too and I put it on the pizza and made a barbecue pulled pork pizza you will slap somebody the closest person to you immediately one bite somebody's getting slapped it was that good 
all things work together for good. You got to know this. When you stop knowing this, you fall into depression. When you stop knowing this, you fall into disappointment. And what tends to happen is that God takes you through a mountain and through a valley, makes good, brings good out of it, but simultaneously something bad happens to cloud your vision of the good that transpired. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I sat down to journal a couple of days ago, and I've been reflecting on the highest level of human happiness. What is the pinnacle of human happiness? And I was watching all these YouTube videos, and I, it was just so much nonsense out there that masquerades as knowledge. And I saw this one guy, he was a PhD in this or that or the other, and he, it was this documentary setting, looked very professional. He had an air of intellectuality about him, but he was talking about hacking the human brain to produce the highest level of human happiness perpetually. And he was alluding to all these studies. And you know what his answer was? He said in a very articulate and scholarly way. But his answer was drugs, sex, and rock and roll. I wanted to throw something at the TV. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that those things are not good. Well, I don't know about the drugs. I never did that. And I mean, rock and roll, I, I prefer other genres of music. But you understand what I'm saying. I don't, I don't doubt. I mean, my wife would tell me about when she did drugs. You know, she said when she first smoked cocaine, she thought to herself, this is why people do drugs. But I sat down to reflect on my own life, and I, I, the question I asked myself was, what are the moments when I was the happiest, the most fulfilled, the most satisfied that I've ever been in my life. And I started to write down these moments. Now, I'm not talking about situational moments like the moment my daughter was born. That's a big one. The moment Sonny said yes when I asked her to marry me. That was a big one. But, I mean, the situ take the situations out. I'm talking about lifestyle. And the moments that came to me that I wrote down were three moments, and all three of them were in the middle of extended fasts. The first one was on the eighth day of a fast. Second one was like 20-something day. Third one was the 38th day of a 40-day fast. We tend to think of fasting as a feat of emptiness. Whenever I talk about fasting and I talk about the different fasts that I've done, people look at me like, oh, that's a great feat. You were empty for that long. But we don't realize it's a feast of fullness. I got no amens because most people just don't, that don't make no sense. Like, whatever you say, Pastor. <laughs> the last fast I did was 2020. I used to do this every year. But it dawned on me two days ago. I thought, the highest levels of happiness and fulfillment that I've ever experienced were in the midst of extended fasts. But yet it's been two, almost about a year and a half since I last fasted. So what's going on with that? Why? And I started to reflect and I realized that the last extended fast I did was in 2020, spring of 2020. 
This young lady is highlighting her whole Bible. She's not going to forget none of that. <laughs> Just messing with you. On the 38th day of that fast, I had this moment that I cannot even describe with you, to you at night where all of a sudden I was taken into this place of fellowship and communion with God that I always knew existed but had only visited a couple of other times in my life. And in that place, I felt like I don't need anything else. I despised food. I thought to myself, I never need to eat again. I literally felt like I don't ever need to eat again. God forbid that I should trade this for a taco or a burrito or a slice of pizza. And I thought, Lord, just keep me here. I have no needs. It was Psalm 23, like in living color. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Not just a verse of scripture somebody wrote. It was my life. That was my experience. That was, that was where I was. I was Psalm 23. I was in Psalm 23 at that moment. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no needs. I want for nothing. I possess all things. God and I are one. There's nothing missing in my life. I, I'm become one with him. I'm in him and he's in me. And nothing is, and there was this fullness of joy and this abounding of, and it wasn't ecstatic, you know, where I'm falling out. Oh, you know what I mean? It wasn't like that. It wasn't rolling around and it was not an ecstatic moment. It was a moment of complete and total satisfaction and peace and joy that was like a river and this overflowing sense of fulfillment. And I thought, that was so good. Why, why haven't I gone back there? You know why? Because two days later, Robert Shaw died. It was his sickness that drew me into the fast. You remember when COVID first hit? And we had to cancel our services all of a sudden? I got a call from his wife, Grace. I had just done their wedding a couple months, a few months prior, four or five months prior. Remember at our all church retreat in the fall of 2019? They had just come to the Lord. He had just graduated from law school. And she called me up and said, Robert's in the ICU. So what happened? He got COVID. And suddenly he couldn't breathe. And I had to rush him suddenly to the hospital and they had to intubate him. I went to my knees and I didn't get up for about 40 days. My wife came downstairs and I was praying. And she went upstairs and came down hours later and I was praying. And she went upstairs and came down hours later and I was praying. And I did that all day for about 40 days. On the 38th day, the Lord took me to this place where I thought, this is life. This is the highest level of human happiness. There's not enough drugs in the world to do this. There's not enough sex in the world to do this. There's not enough rock and roll in the world to do this. There's not enough money in the world to do this. This is life. This is living. And then Bobby died. And I was disappointed with God. I was angry with God. I was hurt by God. I felt betrayed by God. And I stopped talking to him for a little while. And I stopped talking to him for a little while because 
It was the only way for me not to be mad at him. Because see, when you're mad at someone that you highly respect and you know you can't lash out at them, the only thing you can do is avoid them. So I avoided him so that I would not lash out at him. Looking back, I should have lashed out at him. There's a way to lash out at God that's right. There's a way to come to him and say, God, I am really wrestling with this. I don't know how to process this. I don't know what to do with this. You're going to have to help me. My disappointment is deep. When you come to a place in your walk with God where you're disappointed with him, you walk away from him and you don't even realize that you have. You never intended to. I realized that that place that God took me to, the highest level of human happiness, I forsook it because of disappointment. And I haven't been back. Not to, don't get me wrong, I'm still a Christian. I still pray. I still pray fervently sometimes. Let's <laughs> keep it real. But I haven't been back to that place. I don't believe you have to go through a 40-day fast to get there, by the way. But that's the context in which I found that place. And I realized that every time I've gone through that, and I've gone through that multiple times, somebody died. I was drawn into a place of prayer and intercession for somebody's life, and that person died at the end of it. It's happened again again, and again, and again. You know what the Lord said to me as I was journaling and I'm going through this process? And I realized this. The Lord said, Benjamin, you misunderstood the reason why I was calling you to prayer. In all three of those situations, you thought that the purpose, the reason I was drawing you to pray was so that that person would be healed. Benjamin, I don't need you to fast and pray for that person to be healed. I could heal them without your fasting and prayer. I called you to prayer because I wanted you to be with me. Life and death is always in His hands. It's never in my hands. It's never my, it's never something. I, listen, I cannot control life or death. None of us can control life or death that remains in the hands of God. Our job is to pray and to believe. God's job is to decide. But the disappointment was so thick that I stopped believing that this was one of the things through which God could work good. I stopped seeing these things in my life working for good. I stopped believing and knowing that this was working for good. I stopped paying attention to the fact that this was working for good. And I, the disappointment was so deep that I subconsciously judged that fast and said it was meaningless, it was worthless, because Bobby still died. And I forgot that God actually had taken me to the pinnacle of human happiness, which was communion with Him at a deeper place than I thought possible. This verse of Scripture is for that place of disappointment in your life. This verse of Scripture is not for the good times. It's more for the bad times than for the good times. 
It's for the stuff that's falling apart where you need to know. Where you just, I, it, I just don't see how possible this can work for good. This situation is so bad that it's not possible for it to work for good. Well, you don't know who God is. What happens when we hit that place of disappointment, we want to just throw it out. Give it up. We either want to kill ourselves or we just want to die or we just give up on living. Just say, you know what? Just let the days pass until I die. We've lost heart. God is inviting us to recover our confidence to rise up once again, you have the privilege of knowing that all things in your life work together for good because you love God. Now watch this. There's two qualifications. To those who love God, that's number one, and who are the called according to His purpose. Now that word purpose is peculiar here. It's the word prothesis. Or we could say prothesis. Pro and thesis. Who are the called according to God's prothesis. Now, when you and I hear the word purpose, the first thing we think of is some mystery, something hidden, something secret, the secret, inscrutable purpose of God, the will of God, which He determined in eternity before the world began, which we will never see. The scroll that Jesus took out of the hand of the Father who sat on the throne, it was sealed with seven seals, written on the inside and on the out. It's a secret. It's closed. It's covered. But that's not what the word prothesis means. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word, the word prothesis is used to translate the word showbread. The showbread, every Saturday, every Sabbath, the priests of Israel would bake 12 loaves of bread, one for every tribe of Israel, and they would take those 12 loaves of bread into the holy place and lay them on the altar before God in two rows. Two rows of six. And those loaves of bread would lay before the Lord for seven days. And then seven days later, they'd take the old out and they'd put the new out so that the showbread was always on the altar. It represented the fact that all 12 tribes of Israel belonged to the Lord. The loaves of bread represented the fact that this, this showbread is presented to God. It's on display. It's called showbread because it's bread that's on show that you can see. It's on display. It's not a mystery. It's a revelation. It's not closed. It's open. It's not a secret. It's revealed. The prothesis of God is what's revealed, not what's hidden. It's what's, what God puts on display. The prothesis of God is first and foremost the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when He was nailed to the cross, He was put on display before the whole world. It wasn't a secret. It was, it was revealed. And the crucifixion, literally, you're nailed to a cross and you're lifted up so that everyone can see you. You're put on display before the world. Jesus was the showbread of God. When Israel laid the showbread on the altar, it was an expression to God, all of us belong to you. When Jesus hung on a cross, God presented his showbread to us saying, we belong to you. I belong to you. 
It was God offering us His presence in every detail of the suffering that transpires in our lives. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ was. Now watch this. Called according to His prothesis. Called according to His purpose. What does that mean? That means that the purpose of God culminates in the cross of Jesus Christ, but transpires in every difficulty that we walk through in life. Which means that in every moment of difficulty that you experience in life, you are on display. There are people around you who are watching you walk through your trials, watching you walk through your tribulations, watching you walk through the stuff that you got to walk through in life, and you are on display. And God, in this way, God, God does not leave himself without a witness. You hear what I'm saying? I'll never forget when we lost our home and, and we bought it in 2007, we lost it in 2011, and I was once again disappointed with God. Thanks a lot, God. You worked miracles for us to get into this house in 2007. 45 minutes later, the bottom fell out of the housing market, and we lost it four years later. And God said, I put you on display. The people around you are going to watch you walk through this, but you're going to walk through it in faith. I'm not rescuing you from this situation because I need a witness in this situation. Someone who walks through it, but walks through it in faith, believing. Someone who walks through it, but doesn't let go of their hope and doesn't let go of their joy. You are a witness. You are on display. The people around you are watching you run your race. They're watching the way you run your race. They're watching you walk through your trials. They're watching you walk through your tribulation. You are on display. And God says, because you're willing to be on display for me, I'm going to make the stuff in your life work for your good. You caught that? Mm. And then the last part, as somebody, Grace, you can come to the piano here. I skipped this, didn't I? Those who love God. You can claim this verse if, number one, you're willing to be put on display. Which means whatever you've got to walk through, you're just willing to walk through it in faith. But number two, that you love God. Loving God, simple. We love Him because He first loved us. I talk to a lot of believers who feel guilty. So I just don't feel like I love God enough. Well, number one, if you just don't feel like you love God enough, you actually love Him more than you think you do. Because to even want to love Him more, you got to love Him. But number two, even if you don't really love God because you don't really know God, a lack of love for God, you know where it comes from? A lack of knowledge of how much He loves you. That's all. The only way to love God is to come to grips with how much He loves you. And the moment you realize how much He loves you, you can't help but love Him. Love is just the natural response. I told this story many times to my daughter. When she was an infant, she needed to be held, not only held, but shaken. You know, they say, don't shake a baby. No, she needed to be shaken. Like, just bounced vigorously. And then patted. And she, you had to slap the crap out of her back. She just was, and so I would walk around, and I'd sing, and I'd bounce her. And uh, it was the only way she would calm and quiet. 
She felt loved. She felt cared for. I remember she was probably about 18 months old. And I was holding her and I was bouncing her on my shoulder and I was patting her back. And she was holding onto my neck. And all of a sudden she starts slapping my back. What was that? She was giving me back the love I gave her. She was saying, I feel so loved when you do this for me. I want to give it back to you. We love him because he first loved us. Only way we love God is let him love you first. Which means you don't focus on loving God. You focus on being loved by God. You focus on opening your heart to God's love. You focus on opening your heart saying, God, show me how much you love me. Pour out your love in my heart. Give me a revelation of, my lo of your love. Help me to understand your love. I receive your love. Sometimes you just got to say that by faith. God, I receive your love. I open my heart to your love. Because you know what? God is pouring out his love on you every day. But we're, most of the time, we're not aware of it at all. The love of God comes to us most clearly. It's on display in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where he took all of your sin and all of my sin on his body in the cross. He demonstrated his love for us by taking the punishment for our sin so that you and I could come to the Father free of charge and receive his salvation as a free gift from a benevolent God. That's where the love of God starts. Go to the cross. Go to the place where Jesus hung on the cross for you. It wasn't just a grotesque act. It was love. I think about it all the time. If something were to threaten my family, I would step in front of it in a heartbeat. Jesus stepped in front of hell for you and for me. He stepped in front of the wrath of God for you and for me. He stepped in front of the punishment that belonged to you and me. That's love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told the story of him and his brother wetting the mailman with a water hose. Their father was angry. He took them into the room and took off his belt. He said, you know what you did? They said, yeah. He said, you know what you deserve? They said, yeah. And he handed the belt to Martin and turned around. He said, what are you doing, Dad? He said, I'm going to take the punishment for what you did. Someone needs to be punished for this. I'm going to take it. Now, you, you, you spank me. And they started crying. They said, no, I can't do it, Dad. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. And their dad turned around and said, this is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for you on the cross. He took your sin. He took my sin. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And not only for us, but also for the whole world. And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I will know my, and by no means cast him out. You just got to come to him and open your heart to him and say, Jesus, I receive your love. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made for me. And that love that gets poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, it just naturally teaches us how to love God in response. Our hearts sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh my soul. Rejoice, 
See, I, I just can't help singing over him because he's been singing over me since I was in my mother's womb. Just as I used to hold my daughter and sing over her, the Lord has held me and sung over me. And the more rambunctious she was, the tighter I would hold her. I wouldn't push her away. I would bring her near. He loves you. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here in this place today. On this 828, we know that in all things, you are working good for us. Because we love you, we're the called according to your purpose. Settle every heart today, Father, and bring peace to every soul. Let every heart open utterly to the joy and to the love of Jesus Christ. Let every soul be held in his arms. And let confidence restore, be restored in every heart. Replace disappointment. Replace disappointment with confidence in you. Let the lie be removed and let the truth be established in every soul. I give you praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.